1 Peter 1. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it here in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so that I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this the kinsman redeemer said, then, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandals and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses. I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Mahlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. And the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that, like that of Perez, whom Tamar brought to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, 
Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. So we've finally reached the final chapter, the closing chapter of the story of Ruth, this little, short little history. Um, today, I, I think what it, we see is how costly redemption brings real hope unfolding hope and a future. And that that redemption that we see in very sort of down-to-earth little story here is the pattern for God's own king, his Messiah, for Jesus himself. This story, and, and this is only clear now that we get to the end, isn't just a story for story's sake. Um, it's more than that. It's, uh, it's an origin story. You know how, uh, you know, whether it's a superhero or the founder of a multinational company. People like to tell stories about how important people got to be where they are now, whether that's why, just why Darth Vader is so grumpy, or whether it's why, how the founders of Amazon and Apple are such brilliant technologists that they, on their own, from working from their garages, can create great multinational corporations. People in the ancient world did exactly the same thing. You know, if you want to be a great king, you want ideally to be descended from a reasonably powerful god. It's a pretty good thing to give you a bit of credibility. People follow you then, don't they? If they think the god's going to have problems with you if you don't do that. Julius Caesar said he was descended from Venus. You know, what kind of, you know, that's a pretty good, you know, vote for me. I'm descended from the goddess of peace and love. Well, what are you going to get if you vote for me? What do you think? Now, this is an origin story. The, the, the very last word is David. So the great king of the Old Testament, the one who brought hope and peace to the nation of Israel, came from here. This is not the story of how he was descended from a mighty God or even from a mighty hero. This is the, the story of how the great hero king of the Old Testament is descended from a penniless, struggling, lonely asylum seeker. It's not how you write the story if you want people to think you're a great and amazing guy. Not normally. It's a sign that what the Bible from that all the way through is celebrating, looking to and saying, these are the values that God's king will have. Not the values of heroism and might, but the values of unstinting, sacrificial love. Because that's what this story's shown it us, hasn't it? It's shown Ruth's amazing willingness to give up everything to love her mother-in-law. And it, it, today it, it will show us Boaz's willingness to give up his future and his life to love Ruth and Naomi. God's saying, that's what I valued when I picked my king, David. And in the end, David was a pattern for his great descendant, Jesus. That's what I valued. That's what I was looking for in my own king. So as we say, we've come to the end of the story. And as Obviously, on Ruth, you know, it began in the time when the judges ruled. It's a dark time. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of anarchy. And the little family of Elimelech and Naomi left the land of promise because of a famine. God had promised them to look after them in, in his own land, but they didn't trust him. They, they head off into Moab, a, a foreign, a dangerous land. While they're there, Elimelech dies and his two sons die, leaving Naomi with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. 
One of them goes off home. Naomi, though, decides to go back to her own people. And Ruth, her daughter-in-law, clings to her. And to her God, comes back to her. When Naomi gets back to town, her friends all say, Oh, look, Naomi's back. Can, can this be Naomi? And she says, Don't call me that. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because that's my life now. God has left me with a bitter and empty life. But he hasn't. God has not abandoned her. When Ruth goes out to scavenge food, chapter 2, she just happens to end up in the field of a relative. And not just a relative, but someone who is a redeemer, someone under God's law obliged to look after and care for a family when they're in trouble. And that's what he does. And that prompts Naomi to come up with a slightly crazy plan we saw in chapter 3, asking, getting Ruth to ask Boaz to marry her in the middle of the night. And, and the chapter ended with him saying, I'd love to, but, but there is someone who has a closer claim. Someone who legally has both the obligation and the right to, to rescue and redeem you. And, and if he does it, I can't. But wait a minute, I will go and sort it out immediately. And that's what he does. We left him heading into town. And so, chapter four, we, he, he's in town now, at verse one. And you could skip this chapter, couldn't you? You could just say, and they lived and got married happily ever after. Why don't they? Why is there all this odd legal kerfuffle with sandals and sitting down at town gates? I think the reason is that it's going to demonstrate just how costly and risky what Boaz is going to do in marrying Ruth is. It's not the sensible thing to do. It's an act of real self-sacrificial love. If this was a modern drama, we'd be seeing Boaz going to visit his bank manager or his mortgage advisor at this point. And there'd be a lot of tut-tutting and uh, telling him he really ought to think sensibly. The, the love that the Bible calls us to is always costly, and this is an example of it. So he heads off to the town gate, verse 1. In those little towns, the town gate and the square by it was where you did your business. It's like the Market Cross in an old Scottish town. And he sits down, waiting. And lo and behold, the man he's mentioned comes along. We hear, don't hear his name. Boaz calls him my friend, or you could even translate that, Mr. So-and-so. In other words, it's deliberately anonymous. The story doesn't tell us who he is. So Mr. Boaz calls over Mr. So-and-so, come and sit with me. He gets ten elders because he wants things done publicly and above board. And then very respectfully in verse 3, he lays out the situation to this kinsman redeemer. You know, Naomi and Ruth are in trouble. Naomi has this plot of land which she has from her husband Elimelech. It's the family inheritance. It's, if the family is going to have a future, it needs this inheritance. And it's the redeemer's obligation to buy back that land for the family. Um, of course, someone else is probably farming it at the moment, so they need to sort that out. But Boaz lets Mr. So-and-so know all of that. Do you, do you want to buy back the land and look after Naomi like you're obliged to? And the man says, I will redeem it. At which point we're read because Boaz has said he's hoping to marry Ruth and look after them and redeem them and rescue them. And here's this other random coming, cutting in. Just in case it's not obvious, Boaz is Mr. Right here. The other guy is a random whose name we don't even know. And we know Boaz is kind and gracious and loving. We don't want the story to go this way. But Boaz is a cunning sort of guy. He's the kind of guy who knows how to manage a, commi a committee. We'll see that in a moment. Mr. So-and-so thinks he's got a good deal, you see. He's 
got to pay up for the land. He's got to work the land, but and he's got to feed Naomi out of, out of it. But, you know, she's getting on a bit. She's not going to be able to eat that much, really. And once she dies, the land is his, and it's his kids after him. So he gets to double his land and look like the good guy doing it. Boaz, though, at this point, just when the man is thinking about the tidy little profit he's going to make, brings up the sting in the tail. Incidentally, Mr. So-and-so, in verse 5, when you buy the land, you'll marry Ruth the Moabites as well, won't you? You know, she's part of the family, and since obviously is redeeming, rescuing the family, you need to look after her and marry her, because after all, that's the only way that the family can have a kid to carry on the family name. That was the custom that was uh, in God's law as well in Deuteronomy 25, that uh, particularly a brother had the obligation to marry a widow so that the first child would carry on the name of the dead, dead man. Now, he's not legally obliged to do it here because he's not the brother, but he's saying, if you're going to redeem them, are you going to live up to the proper standards? Are you doing this out of selflessness or all for yourself? It's definitely not, Mr. So-and-so, just about building up your property for your kids, is it? So Boaz is holding him to a higher standard. And at this point, Mr. So-and-so gets cold feet. I cannot redeem it, he says, because I might endanger my own estate. And he's saying effectively this. Boaz, you're asking me to stake my whole life on this. To marry a girl I don't really know, a foreigner from a dodgy country at that, oppressive and corrupt and all of that, and you are gambling that she'll have at least two sons, one to, to carry on the old family name, one to carry on my family name. You might want to remember here that uh, verse 4 of chapter it implies that she'd been married for 10 years and had no kids before. It's a big gamble. And if she only has one, then it's Elimelech's family and not Mr. So-and-so's family that gets carried on. So he's going to have to put all his cash and his future, the future of his family, on the line for this. Now, it's quite alien to us, but for the people in the ancient world, all around the world, carrying on your family name, the, the limited immortality of having your kids carry on your name and remember you, that was almost everything. And so he says, I can't do it. It's endangering what I care about most. That's exactly the conclusion, of course, Boaz wants him to come to. And so Boaz jumps straight in and he makes everything legal in verses 7 and 8. Now, the writer has to explain what's going on here because even to him, what happens here is quite odd and old-fashioned. There are no written contracts, so once somebody takes off their sandal and hands it to the other person, presumably in front of all these witnesses, so people can see the properties transferred. Uh, this is such an old-fashioned thing when Ruth uh, writes that he has to explain it. Uh, presumably, it gets a little bit awkward hopping home from business transactions when you've left your sandal behind. So they've changed the customs a little bit. But he does it publicly, above board, legally. That's the point. And verse 9, he, he, he then declares that he's going to do this. He's going to redeem them. He's going to look after the family's inheritance and land for them. And verse 10, more, he's going to marry Ruth. And here, of course, the marriage isn't, isn't going to become quick, quick sneaking off to the record office. He wants to underline publicly in front of the whole village that he is going to do this to, so that Ruth will have the confidence in his love that comes from his willingness to make that absolute lifelong public commitment. You know, that, that's what, what's key about Christian marriage even now. It's a publicly committed love that's meant to last for life. And it's a risky thing, as it is for Boaz here. 
promising love when you don't know the future. He says, you know, I've acquired Ruth. Not meaning, of course, and, and the Bible does make this clear in other places that he's going to own Ruth. It's not that. Rather, I am willing to pay the price to make her my wife. All the risks, all the costs that Mr. So-and-so just wouldn't take on. He's taking them on publicly and clearly in front of everyone he knows. He is willing to gamble with his future, his family's future, and his life to look after these people. That is self-sacrificial love. So we see why Boaz includes these strange details about sandals and town gates. Because without it, we could just see Boaz as some rich bloke who could easily do all of this. But we see that this is a picture of the kind of committed love that the Bible calls us to. That love is so much more than an emotion or a feeling or hormones. This is the love that is deep commitment and willingness to sacrifice and risk for those you love. That's what Boaz is showing to Ruth here and indirectly also to Naomi, being willing to commit totally at any cost. That is going to be the heritage of King David. That is going to be the heritage of David's great son, Jesus, the willingness to give up all and risk all for those they love. Now, verse 11 to 17, that redemption, that costly redemption brings blessing. It brings good. It brings good to Ruth and Naomi, just in the same way that Jesus' costly redemption buys goodness and good things for us. You see, we, here we finally have the happy ending we've been waiting for. Ruth, who committed to Naomi, who left behind her family and her land and everything, finally has found a home and love and a future. They're going to be married. And everyone in town, notice this, thinks it's fantastic. They're asked to witness. In other words, to say, yeah, we, we heard it's all happened. But they do more than that. They burst out into, into blessing and praise. The, the men, first of all, they've been asked to be witnesses. And uh, they immediately start to ask and pray for the future of this family. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now, the whole nation of Israel traced their descendants, traced their sort of ancestry back to those two women. And they're saying, Boaz, we know that you've taken a gamble on whether your family name is going to be carried on at all. May God make your wife like those women so that you two together are the ancestors of a great family line. And as for you, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. In other words, may people remember what you've done here today. And then verse 12, may, may your family be as famous as that of our ancestor, Perez, who Tamar, another widow needed, who needed a redeemer, bore to Judah. In other words, let it be a great family line like ours. And of course, God has answered that prayer. You know, Mr. So-and-so was concerned to preserve his own family name. He wouldn't take the risk. And here's Boaz, and we're reading about him 3,000 years later. There aren't many kings or emperors from that time who are remotely well-known as this little man from that little town, that dusty place long ago. And as for the family, you hardly get any better-known family in the history of the world. And so Boaz marries Ruth, and she has a son. Now, all through the book, uh, the writer's been hinting God is at work behind the scenes. There's lots of coincidences in this book. But only twice in the book does he explicitly say God does something. And this is one of them. God gives them a child. He wants to underline the wonder and the gift of it, 
the goodness of it, and that God is blessing their sacrifice. And then in 14 and 15, Bethlehem's women are also delighted at this, this marriage and at what it means, what it symbolizes. But they don't focus their words on the future, they focus them on the present. And they focus them not on Ruth and Boaz, but on poor Naomi, who had been left utterly hopeless. Remember at the start of the story, she was expecting just to fade away all alone, unloved, unknown, in poverty and desperateness. Well, they say, this might be a patriarchal society. Everyone in this society wants seven sons, the ideal family, lots of sons, big, strong, muscly sons to work your land and fend off the neighbours when they try and grab it. And they say, no, well, Ruth, this poor foreign widow, she's better to you than ten sons. She's the, the best family you could have. And they look at her and say, praise be to God. God has been good to you, Naomi. He's rescued you. He's given you a true kinsman redeemer. Someone who will renew your life, bring your hope back, bring your joy back. Someone who will sustain you, who will care for you when you're old. And may that redeemer be famous. And of course, we might think as we're reading that, oh, she's, they're talking about Boaz and saying how great he is. But if we look closely at verse 15, it says about this redeemer, your son-in-law, sorry, your daughter-in-law has given him birth. Because Boaz has redeemed there's a new redeemer in the family now, Obed. Someone who will care for them and look after them and love them, even when the old redeemer, Boaz, is gone. There is security for the future for Naomi. And so Naomi takes this little son in her arms. She looks after him. And the woman see that in her grief and her loss, it's like she has a new son once again. Her life, which was empty, I mean, she must still have looked back with tears often, but she has a hope and a future and she's back in a happily family again, tied together by those unbreakable loves, bonds of self-sacrificial love. Now, of course, the story has such a happy ending and she would have still grieved. But we see how costly redeeming love that first Ruth and then Boaz had brought her, had brought her back from that utter despair. And that is what real love does, isn't it? The, the love that won't let people go, not just when we like them, but when they need us. It's the power to give new hope and purpose to life, especially in these big life-changing acts like Ruth and Boaz do, but also in the little genuine committed acts of love that we have to one another. When the people around us need compassion and love that they can't get in other places. These are models for us, without a doubt, of willingness to bring hope back into other people's lives. But of course, they are also models of what Jesus himself did in being willing to sacrifice to bring that hope and life to us, to bring us into his family, to bring us into a future and a hope that cannot spoil or fade when all tears are wiped away. Because 18 to 22 makes it clear that the redemption that Boaz bought buys a future. And that again is very clearly a picture of the greater future that we have. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David, the greatest king of Israel. It's funny how they leave this to the end of the book, isn't it? You know, you'd expect them to start the book by saying this is the family history of David. But they don't. 
There was one, that, that David is the greatest king of Israel. He was the one who would rescue and redeem a whole people. They were living in, as we said, a desperate time in the book of Judges. Oppressed by enemies round about, struggling and often in poverty and oppression. And he would rescue them. And God would choose him because he led like a servant. Because he was humble and gracious and self-sacrificial. Not like so many other kings who grasp for power and success and strength. And this little story says, well, this is why David was like he was. This was his family history. And so the story closes with a family tree. It's rather dry. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and so on. 3,000 years ago, nearly every history was like that, all the way through. It comes at the end here to remind us, we've been let in on the family secret. We've been let in on the actual people behind the names. Most of the great kings of 3,000 years ago, they get nothing more than a name in a list like this. But here we have the story of ordinary people, a poor foreign widow who didn't even grow up knowing God, but who, like the man who finally married her, exemplified God's own loving kindness and that self-sacrificial and risky love. We're coming up to Christmas, and if we looked at the story, beginning of the Christmas story in the book of Matthew, it would begin with a list of names, the names from whom Jesus descended, and it would include these names, and it would include Ruth's name. It's a reminder. You want to understand where Jesus came from? Read about this woman. Read about her. And the reason that God gave us this long history, as, as we said, it's an origin story. It's like a prequel. You want to understand a little bit more about the redemption Jesus gave us? Here's an earlier redemption that came in his family. 1 Peter chapter 1, which we also read at the start. It tells us that we were redeemed. We were redeemed from the empty way of life that we got from our ancestors. Because even when our life is filled with joy or contentment or love, there is an emptiness to it because in the end it ends in nothing, in emptiness, in death, in loss. And often that loss comes earlier. But we were redeemed. We were rescued, not with perishable things like silver or gold. Well, as you see, gave his life to redeem Ruth, his, his future, his, his, his hopes and his dreams. Well, Jesus gave his life, his breath, his blood, his death and all. For you, he left the riches of heaven to be the price to rescue you. You were rescued by the precious blood of Christ. And, and Peter carries on, through him we believe in God who raised this Jesus to life. So if we've come to believe in him, we have that future. We have that hope. Because we were bought at a price. And he says, now that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. The story of Jesus' redemption, just like the story of Ruth and Boaz's redemption, is a story of us being rescued and giving purpose and a hope and in turn learning to love like they loved, passing on the love Jesus showed to us passing on the kindness and the grace and the self-sacrifice he showed because we know we have a future. We know we have a hope. We know how we have a family and a joy ahead of us in heaven.
when Jesus, the night before he died, was talking to his disciples, he said, you know, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make it ready for you. And when I'm ready, I will come back. Ruth chapter 4 has been a little like that. Boaz headed into town. He was saying to Ruth, I'm going to give you a home and a future. I just need to sort some things out first. And then I'll come back. That is what Jesus is doing for us right now. Let's pray. Father, so often it is hard for us to get our heads around the scale of what Jesus has done for us. It's hard for us to imagine what it meant to leave the glories of heaven to give himself his life up to buy us, to give us a future and a hope. We pray that in this little story, with people who are so much more down to earth, even if very distant from us, we would see a picture of what it does mean to give up your life and your future out of love for others, so that we might understand better what you did for us, so that we might be able to grasp and to feel what it is to have someone give up everything in love for us. Everything to bring us into their family. Everything to bring us into a happy, joyful future with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.